According to his promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace, spotless and blameless, and grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Our growth comes through the scriptures. Join me, if you would, once again in the book of Jeremiah, Jeremiah chapter 26. It's a 52-chapter book, so when we wrap up today, we'll be halfway through. How about that? With chapter 26. In the beginning, in the beginning, all right, no, not Genesis in the beginning, Jeremiah 26, in the beginning, in the beginning of the reign of Jehoiakim, the son of Josiah, king of Judah, this word came from the Lord, saying, so you realize we're backing up a little bit. This book is frustrating because it's not sequential, and every chapter seems to be like scrambled eggs. It's uh, back and forth, and it's forward and backward, and, and you're not entirely clear without a scorecard uh, what the time frame is. And so it's useful to have timelines and other uh, aids, other study aids to help us. I'm going to put a picture up on the screen that will help us here shortly so that we can keep these things in, uh, in perspective. It was the purpose of Jeremiah when all was said and done to put it in writing and to do so in a thematic order rather than a chronological order. And that was a blessing for Daniel and the other captives. It was a blessing for, uh, for everyone as, uh, as Scripture was put together in this way. Thus says the Lord, stand in the court of the Lord's house and speak to all the cities of Judah who have come to worship in the Lord's house. All the words that I have commanded you to speak to them, do not omit a word. All right, so here we have what we're going to be looking at today. Before we get started, though, let's take a moment for silent prayer. <clears throat> then we might uh, be in fellowship. We might be spiritually humble to receive the word implanted. Shall we pray? Most gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for this new day. We rejoice in your truth and the privilege and blessing that we have to assemble together to receive instruction. I thank you, Father, by your grace, we have a provision that has been made. We have a grace provision of a local church. We have a grace provision of a pastor teacher. We have every grace provision that you've made possible for us to assemble together and receive instruction on this day. And we have the living and abiding Word of God, Father. We have a book of the Bible that was, yes, it was written thousands of years ago, but it is alive and powerful, as true today as it's ever been, applicable and powerful for our daily life. I thank you for the tandem of Isaiah and Jeremiah and this tandem of books that's preparing our nation, preparing our congregation to deal with whatever lies in store, whatever direction our nation goes. I thank you, Father, that you are equipping us to deal with come what may. And I thank you, Father, in Jesus Christ's name. Amen. All right, so here's the message Jeremiah is given to preach. Jeremiah is given a message to preach to the cities of Judah when they come to Jerusalem for worship. And so if you were with us in this study, way back to chapter 7, we've got a parallel here with sermons that are preached in the temple, sermons that are preached. And we have an emphasis when he's preaching uh, for the king's attention. We have an emphasis when he's preaching for the, the people's attention. Here, he's preaching to the people, but he's preaching to the people from out of town. All right, he's preaching to the cities that are coming to Jerusalem because that's where the temple is. They're coming to Jerusalem to worship. And so he believes that he may encounter some positive volition, all right? He's actually mistaken in that belief, uh, but we all can come to a similar assumption because somebody is taking the time to go to church that they must be spiritually minded. That may not be the case. It may be that they're coming for other reasons, that they have carnal reasons. They have other reasons to want to be, to see and to be seen in a church-like environment. Um, and we'll, we'll discuss the nature of, of this message here this morning, but it's a little bit different. What happens when you give up on the capital city and you think the only hope for rescue now is out there in the general population? It's, the, the hope is not in Jerusalem, but it's in the cities that are coming from throughout Judah, from other places, see. Uh, is, it, is it time to just give up on Washington, D.C.? If there's any hope for this land, is it going to come in the heartland? Is it going to come in other cities? Is it going to come when believers are responsive to the Word of God? And that's what we're going to see by the end of the chapter. The primary criteria is the response to the Word of God. Are people humble to receive instruction? Are we, are we going to have a King Hezekiah? Are we going to have a King Zedekiah? Who are we going to have? And in the case maybe here with Jehoiakim, it's not, uh, it's not a happy ending. Because Jehoiakim is as wicked as they come. 
and uh, we're going to see that as well. It is useful, I think, in some respects to have a timeline available, and there are different tools that are available for this uh, in, the, in the Logos Bible software that I use. Um, they've created, in fact, a, a Life of Jeremiah timeline as a part of the infographics uh, utilities. That's going to be way too small. You can't read that. I can't read that. But thankfully, um, it zooms, all right? And it zooms, in fact, we can get it as big as we need to get it, um, in this. And so as we're dealing with the reign of King Jehoiakim, all right, he becomes king there in 609. And we're talking about in the beginning of his reign. Well, how early is the beginning of his reign? I mean, obviously starting from the year he ascends and taking us through perhaps 605, perhaps the first four years. He reigns a total of 11. So when you're going to reign 11 years, how much of that is still considered the beginning of your reign? All right. Uh, but in the beginning of his reign, now 605 is key because 605 is when Daniel gets carried away and when some of the royal princes get carried away. All right, and I think it has to precede that. I think this is part of God's warning to Jehoiakim in these, in these early years. Uh, and yet we have a reference that gets made as we go back, reference that gets made all the way back to when Josiah becomes king. Remember, Josiah became a king when he was uh, just a boy, 13 years of age, all right? And then he reigns, and partway through his reign then is uh, they find the law. Jeremiah begins his prophetic ministry early in that reign as well, in the 13th year of, jo- of Josiah's reign. And so we can kind of pinpoint some of these, some of these dates and I think these are, these are excellent dates. They're one or two years uh, at variance with the hallway back here, if you look at the charts on the, on the hallway. And so we're, we're kind of spitballing anyway between, you know, as we go approaching Solomon. Uh, between 586 and 1000 BC is, is, uh, is estimation anyway. Uh, but 627 is a good date for the beginning of Jeremiah. We saw last week where he was talking about being in ministry for 23 years and having no response. Can you imagine? You're on your 23rd anniversary of being a pastor or an evangelist or missionary or whatever, and, and 23 years in and nobody's listening to a thing you have to say. All right. Um, these dates are going to be useful. The finding of the law in 622 is going to be useful. Uh, Jeremiah's only been a prophet for five years. He doesn't really come into the spotlight in that episode when you read about the finding of the law. When you read about in 2 Kings 22 or 2 Chronicles 34, Jeremiah is not featured in that episode. But somebody is featured in that episode who we're going to see today in, uh, in chapter 26 of the book of Jeremiah. He has a central role in that episode and he comes up uh, in today's class as a, uh, as a defender of, uh, of Jeremiah. All right, so I may bookmark that and keep that up for future studies. I think it's useful. But here's the message he's given to preach. And let's look at these early verses here, and we'll see in verses uh, 3 through 6. Again, verse 2, Thus says the Lord, Stand in the court of the Lord's house and speak to all the cities of Judah who have come to worship in the Lord's house. All the words that I have commanded you to speak to them, do not omit a word. And so Libna and Hebron and Bethlehem and all the other cities uh, from the the tribe of Judah, uh, they're coming to worship. And while they're in town, we've got an opportunity to speak truth to them. All right? And it's like when uh, people come to the University of Texas from all over the world. We've got a chance to give them the gospel and preach to them, and then they go back to their home countries, theoretically, and saved, and they can become missionaries uh, there in their, in their homelands. Uh, verse 3, perhaps they will listen, and everyone will turn from his evil way. Perhaps. Now, does God know or does he not know? Okay, well, God knows. Absolutely, he knows. But Jeremiah doesn't know. And God puts himself in Jeremiah's position here and communicates the responsiveness that God will have to the responsiveness that they could have to the Word of God. All right? If they respond positively to the Word of God, God can respond positively to their positive response, to their positive volition. So perhaps they will listen and everyone will turn from his evil way that I may repent of the calamity which I am planning to do to them because of the evil of their deeds. All right, and we get this. Language of accommodation, God never repents, but he uses this terminology from our perspective so that we can relate to how he is approaching us. And you will say to them, thus says the Lord, 
If you will not listen to me to walk in my law, which I have set before you, to listen to the words of my servants, the prophets, whom I have been sending to you again and again, but you have not listened, then I will make this house like Shiloh, and this city I will make a curse to all the nations of the earth. All right, and that's his message. That's the message he has to deliver, and it's not a happy message. He's threatening them, as he did in chapter 7, he's threatening them with turning them into Shiloh. All right, and uh, Shiloh did not have a happy ending. Shiloh is, is not existent at the time Jeremiah is speaking. It has been destroyed in previous years. Uh, we have similar things, ghost towns in various states and various parts of the United States, uh, towns that used to be thriving that now have basically disappeared. You can spot them on a map, but uh, you travel there and the town is not there anymore. The cities of Judah have an opportunity to, re- to respond to the word of God and benefit the temple in a way that Jerusalem is failing to do. It's the cities of Judah now that are being turned to. They've got an opportunity to be blessing by association. If they turn positive, even if the capital stays negative, even if the temple stays in a horrible place with a corrupt priesthood, with, with a high priest that hates Jeremiah, with, with a negative response on the part of the king and the priest and the priesthood, it, it, the cities have a chance to bail them out. The cities have a chance to be blessing by association from beyond Jerusalem. The cities of Judah in a way that Jerusalem is failing to do. All right? And you wonder how much of this has taken place in our country and some of the discipline that's happened in our country. How, what has been the blessing by association in cities and states and localities where the Word of God is being faithfully taught, where believers are positive to the Word of God? See? makes me wonder sometimes i got got to meet the mayor last thursday in the city council and they were thanking mark ott for being the city manager who was leaving and they were welcoming the new interim city manager and different things and celebrating how austin had weathered the great recession better than a whole lot of places and that they had plunged into some economic downturn later than a whole lot of places, and they had come out of it earlier than a whole lot of places, and how Austin had been, they didn't put it in spiritual terms, of course, they didn't say Austin had been blessed by association to the hungry believers of Austin Bible Church, but what they said was they could identify tangible benefits that, that Austin had weathered the, the recession so much better than so many other places. Texas has as a state, and in, in the city of Austin in particular, and they, of course, thanked Mark Ott for his great you know, city manager stewardship and, and so on and so forth. And then when they, after they had done that, then I was slightly amused because then they invited uh, Pastor Bolander from Austin Bible Church to come and give the benediction to open their city council meeting. And I was delighted to just kind of smile and say a prayer and, and ask God for his wisdom to bless the city council. All right. Well, this is what we're talking about. We're talking about a response to the Word of God and then the effects of that in politics and economics and in every realm of, of temporal life. And they have this, uh, this opportunity. The promise, though, is to make the Lord's house like Shiloh. If they don't, failure to respond to the Word of God will make the Lord's house like Shiloh. And you might recall the Old Testament stories. You might recall what happened at Shiloh. That's where the tabernacle ended up uh, after several relocations and after the ark had been captured and then the ark had been returned. And then, and then eventually the tent of meeting just kind of became this bedraggled, run-down, nasty place. And David was kind of embarrassed to look at it anymore. He said, that's, that's kind of a, a shabby kind of thing. And, and David was feeling bad because he was living in a nice house and he wanted to build a temple. And, and part of his motivation for building the temple was the fact that, that the tabernacle was, was getting so tattered and worn out and ignored and, and, and all the rest. Well, uh, this is what we deal with when we talk about Shiloh, but we talk about some other things as well. And if you have your notes from chapter 7, we've already addressed this because uh, it was mentioned back in, uh, in chapter 7 and verse 14. Uh, we've already read verse 6 here. The threat comes again in verse 9. Why have you prophesied in the name of the Lord, saying, and these are, these are hostile priests that are giving uh, Jeremiah the, the whatnot, saying, why have you done this? How dare you? Who do you think you are? Why have you prophesied in the name of the Lord, saying this house will be like Shiloh? 
Where do you get off delivering a message like that, Jeremiah? See? Well, he's getting it from the Lord. That's why he dares to do such a thing. This house will be like Shiloh, and the city will be desolate without inhabitant. And all the people gathered about Jeremiah in the house of the Lord. And it's not good. I mean, it's a mob, uh, uh, lynch mob here, basically. And, uh, and, and they want him dead. They're sick of hearing this kind of stuff. So this is the promise to make the Lord's house like Shiloh. Now, on a verse-by-verse basis, and if we had months and months to get through this chapter, we would stop right here. We'd, we'd spend weeks on Shiloh. And we're not going to do that this morning. But Shiloh, I'll give you some verses and you can read them. Uh, I'll give you some verses and, and you can take them home. And basically the first four chapters of 1 Samuel will give you a good idea of what you're dealing with. Shiloh was the setting for tabernacle worship in the late Judges era. At the end of the book of Judges, the first part of 1 Samuel. Remember, Samuel was the last of the Judges and the first of the prophets. And, and as Samuel was born, he was fostered in the, in the home of, of Eli. All right, And Eli's sons were wicked, and it's just a horrible thing there. So in chapter 1, you've got several verses that reference Shiloh. Chapter 2, chapter 3, chapter 4, several verses mentioning Shiloh. And in particular, you have the sadness of what happens there. As the ark is captured, as, as Eli's sons are killed, as Eli falls off his donkey, as the, the uh, daughter-in-law gives birth in, uh, in a premature delivery and names the boy Ichabod. All right? Ichabod meaning no glory. And there's a, there's a parallelism here that's a powerful parallelism to consider. In fact, we should teach the whole doctrine of Ichabod. I wish I knew somebody named... I've never in my life ever met an Ichabod. It'd be great to, to meet an Ichabod. If you know an Ichabod, let me know. Introduce me. Introduce me. I want to meet an Ichabod once in my life. But the, uh, the, the doctrine that's contained in the idea of no glory, okay... Because there, there is glory, of course. The glory is with the Lord, but the Lord has departed. And so in God's abandonment of that glory, as the glory departs, the Philistines had captured the ark in uh, the early chapters here of 1 Samuel. How sad is that for the covenant nation who should be the residence for his glory, who should be the, the place where his name dwells, where his Shekinah shines forth. And the reason why I think it's vital because as Jeremiah is preaching, what's happening? The glory is departing from Israel in his day. Ezra, Ezekiel actually sees it. Ezekiel is, is touring in Jerusalem in, in a spiritual experience at the same time that the glory is departing. And because Ezekiel is in that spiritual state, traveling and, and, and seeing these things, he watches the glory depart. He watches it go. Jeremiah doesn't see it go, but he knows it's gone when he's preaching the destruction of the city, when he's preaching the destruction of the temple. And so these warnings about about Shiloh are are significant. The Bible, though, has something else to say about Shiloh. And, And this is the beautiful thing. When God pronounces a judgment, he also supplies a promise. You ever think about that? He kicked Adam and Eve out of the garden and he pronounced a judgment and there's the judgment upon the woman and the judgment upon the man and the judgment upon the serpent, but there's also a promise that the seed of the woman is going to come and crush the serpent's head. There's a gospel message in, in Genesis 3, even when he's kicking, them out of, he's kicking Adam and Eve out of the Garden of Eden. And I think it's the same thing with Shiloh, because Shiloh is a term that refers to the Messiah. Shiloh is the term that refers to Messiah as the one who holds the scepter. We have a great promise that the, uh, regarding the lion of the tribe of Judah. And, and as, as Jacob is getting ready to die, Jacob, who's renamed Israel, Jacob pronounces blessings upon all of his sons. And the blessing for Judah is the blessing of the scepter. The Messianic prophecy of Shiloh addresses the one to whom the scepter is due. And you can read that in Genesis 49.10 and also you know, uh, it touches upon it in Ezekiel 21.27. The, expre- the, the, the Hebrew expression of Shiloh as referencing the one to whom it is due. And thank God for that. Messiah is the one to whom it is due. He is the one with whom we all must have to do. All right? We all have to do with him. What think ye of Christ? That's the main issue. That's the only issue when it comes right down to it. So here's the, uh, the message. Now, uh, I would love to finish verse 6 and then turn to verse 7 and see repentance and revival <laughs> you know 
But uh, unless I rewrite verse 7, I'm not going to see that. Because verse 7, as written, is, is pretty ugly. All right? And the verses that follow reflect the negative volition response. The priests and the prophets and the people, oh my, right? Um, the priests and the prophets and the people heard Jeremiah speaking these words in the house of the Lord. And when Jeremiah finished speaking, see, those were, I think those are the, the people of Jerusalem, the native inhabitants. He wasn't even speaking to them. He was speaking to the cities that were coming, the out-of-towners. But the priests and the prophets and all the people heard Jeremiah speaking these words. And when Jeremiah finished speaking, all of the Lord had commanded him to speak to the people. Uh, the people, the priests and the prophets, and all the people seized him and said, you must die. Okay? I've had some pretty negative responses to sermons over the years, but not, I've never had a death threat. <laughs> not that blatantly, at least. Not openly. Not, uh, not uh, you know, someone standing in the aisle there and making me want to go out the back door or something like that. Here's, uh, here's their response. You must die. Why have you prophesied in the name of the Lord? Well, because the Lord called them. That's why. Saying, uh, this house will be like Shiloh. So then verse 10, uh, 10. When the officials of Judah heard these things. Now the politicians get involved. And I prefer to use politician rather than officials because that keeps it as a P. You got priests and prophets and people and politicians. All right. Anyway, they're the sarim of, of the Hebrew text here. The officials of Judah. And remember, these are the real officials. These are the ones that have not yet been taken captive like Daniel. These are the ones that have not yet been brought into captivity like Ezra when 10,000 of them are brought in, in 597 B.C. This is, uh, this is early, at the beginning of the reign of Jehoiakim. These are still real officials, real politicians. When the officials of Judah heard these things, they came up from the king's house to the house of the Lord and sat in the entrance of the new gate of the Lord's house. And so this mob that had gathered around, okay, you notice at the end of verse 9, all the people gathered around Jeremiah. They weren't there to hug him, okay? They were there to, to, to bring him to harm. All right, now the officials get in and they decide to convene a trial. All right, at what point is a mob sufficient? And at what point is a mob not sufficient, we need to conduct a trial. We need to invent something to put him to death legally. It's still murder either way, but we want the sanction of religion behind it. We want the sanction of lawfulness behind it. So uh, they uh, sit in the entrance of the new gate of the Lord's house. And the priests and the uh, prophets spoke to the officials and to all the people saying, a death sentence for this man. Have you noticed any charges yet? <laughs> you know, typically there's an indictment, there's charges, there's a trial, there's evidence, uh, but they're starting right off the bat with a death sentence, <laughs> okay? In other words, they have a predetermined outcome. The outcome is death. So what do we got to do to get there? That's what they're looking for. So uh, the priests and the prophets spoke to the officials and all the people said, a death sentence for this man. For he has prophesied, oh, now we get explanation. He has prophesied against this city, as you have heard in your hearing. Is that a crime? Is prophecy a crime? Is prophesying against Jerusalem a crime? Well, if he's giving the message the Lord has given him, it would be a crime not to speak the things of the Lord. But see, what he's preaching is at odds with what their priests are preaching, what their prophets are preaching, what, they, what their uh, false prophets have to say. So verse 12, Jeremiah spoke. Jeremiah spoke to the officials and to all the people, saying, The Lord sent me to prophesy against this house and against this city all the words that you have heard. I'm just preaching what the Lord gave me to preach. Why are you putting me to death? Those words sound familiar? This is such a type of Christ right here. You know? Jesus said, I did many miracles in your in your presence. For which one are you stoning me? And they said, no, we're not stoning you for a miracle. We're stoning you because you're making yourself out to be God. And he said, well, I am God. <laughs> All right. Um, so the Lord sent me. Verse 13, now therefore amend your ways and your deeds and obey the voice of the Lord your God. And the Lord will change his mind about the misfortune which he has pronounced against you. But as for me, this is again, very Christ-like, 
I am in your hands. Do with me as is good and right in your sight. You know, even when you disobey, you, can, you still remain in subjection. And here's Jeremiah. He's going to defy their orders. He's going he's to obey the Lord. He's going to teach the truth. He's going to prophesy and give every message. And if that means they execute him, they execute him. He's in their hands. So he, you can stay in subjection to the governing authorities that are over you. Just be prepared in your subjection and in your disobedience that you will face the, the earthly consequences for that. But relax, because the earthly consequences are a whole lot better than the heavenly consequences of defying the will of God. All right? So as for me, behold, I'm in your hands. Do with me as is good and right in your sight. Only know for certain that if you put me to death, you will bring innocent blood on yourselves and on this city and on its inhabitants. For truly the Lord has sent me to you to speak all these words in your hearing. And the shedding of innocent blood defiles the land. There's two things that defile the land, the shedding of the innocent blood and fornication. They defile the land. There are physical environmental effects of those two things upon territory, as we've seen before. And so here we have a very good parallel. This is something, in fact, the same message there, those same, the sentiments of verses 14 and 15. You wonder, did Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, did they read those verses? Is this what motivated them when they said, hey, you know, throw us in the fiery furnace all you want. We're not going to bow down and worship your statue. Say, we know that Daniel had a copy of the book of, of Jeremiah with him in the captivity. And I presume that his, his prayer meeting partners did as well. That Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego had full advantage of this text as they faced their test as well. All right. So verses uh, 7 through 16 here, along with verse 24, Jeremiah was arrested and charged with, uh, with what exactly? What's, what's he guilty of? What's the charge? There appears to not be a charge, other than we don't like what he has to say. All right? There's no crime in saying a bad thing. Now, a false prophet can be identified as a false prophet if his prophecy does not come about. And as a false prophet, he can then be stoned as a false prophet. But notice, they're not accusing him of being a false prophet, and they're not accusing him of saying, your prophecies aren't coming about. They're not giving time for his prophecies to come about. They're ignoring everything he has to say. They don't like what he has to say. So he's charged with what exactly? It's actually a show trial. They've, they've come to the sentence first before they've even convened the court. You must die. You must die. And uh, it's happened before, uh, chapter 11 and verse 19, chapter 18 and verse 23. There were other plots against Jeremiah's life. This is the sentence we demand, so we will find an appropriate charge to convict you with, <laughs> okay? And you think about show trials. You think about, you know, Stalin was famous for these. A lot of totalitarian regimes are famous for these. You know, they beat a confession out of you. They get you to sign something, and then they fill in the details later. You know, it's fine. well, whatever it needs to be so that the paperwork looks right, so that it has the appearance of a, of a fair trial. And, uh, and of course, it's, uh, it's interesting. Also, looking at the characters involved, I would love to spend some time and focus on the priests and the prophets and the people. Oh, my. All right? Priests and prophets and people. And look at how they can manipulate the mob the priests and the prophets and the people until the politicians get involved. And then now we've got to go through a trial. The mob would have been easier. The mob would have been simpler. You know, you get to Acts chapter 7, the mob gets to, gets to stone Stephen in a mob rule. You know, they didn't have death penalty permission. We learned that when they had to go to Pilate to get Jesus crucified. But it didn't stop them with stoning Stephen, did it? Right? They just took matters into their own hands or took rocks into their own hands. Here's a show trial by mob. Interestingly enough, it fails. And uh, very similar. Remember, Pilate couldn't find any guilt against Jesus and the different kings that Paul stood before. They couldn't find any guilt in Paul. It's interesting. When, and when you and I get dragged before rulers and authorities, make sure when you suffer, you suffer in righteousness. Make sure it's undeserved suffering. Make sure when they find you guilty that it's a trumped-up thing and, and, uh, and uh, you're innocent. Then uh, you have your reward in heaven. 
the show trial by the mob fails to move the officials. And it's interesting, verse 16, the officials and all the people said to the priests and the prophets, no death sentence for this man, for he has spoken to us in the name of the Lord our God. And you notice how early the people were, were behind the prophets and the priests? But as soon as the officials got on board, where did the people go? They switched sides. The people shifted over to the officials. All right? Because look in verse 16. It's the officials and all the people. So people are fickle, right? I mean, people, they'll bend, flow, and go from here to that, and they'll chase that other you know, shiny, shiny thing, and then they get distracted, and then they, they're following this. And then there's a squirrel, you know. Okay. Did you watch Up this week? I love that. Doug. Where's Doug? Squirrel. You know, you get distracted by these things. So the people, in the earlier verses, they're with the prophets and the priests. Now they're abandoning the prophets and the priests, and they're siding with the officials or the politicians. And they say in verse 16, no death sentence for this man, for he has spoken to us in the name of the Lord our God. And there's a chance, you see, that uh, some of this judgment can be forestalled. So this uh, shadow typology here is a marvelous foreshadowing of Jesus Christ. I could spend weeks on this and probably should, but I'll spend minutes instead. In, uh, in John 18, some of these are my favorite verses. How often do you read the Gospels? I recommend, I don't know what your daily scripture reading schedule is or how often you read, but whatever else you do, I, I recommend a gospel a month. Just pick a gospel. Do Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Rotate through them. Read through, you don't have to read the whole gospel. Just read the passion narrative. Read the trials. Read the crucifixion. Read the resurrection. Remind yourself of what saved you. All right. And um, here in John 18, uh, in verse 28, they led Jesus from Caiaphas into the praetorium. And it was early, and they themselves did not enter into the praetorium so that they would not be defiled, but might eat the Passover. See, they're good religious men. They don't want to be defiled. They want to still, you know, never mind that they're committing murder. You know, they want to stay ceremonially clean. They don't want to cross into the praetorium. Therefore, Pilate went out to them and said, What accusation do you bring against this man? You know, normally if you're going to arrest a criminal and you bring the criminal to the, to the judge, you've got to swear an affidavit. You've got to swear out a complaint. You've got to file a, a charge so that an indictment can be, can be brought. What's the charge? What accusation do you bring against this man? And they answered and said, if this man were not an evildoer, we would not have delivered him to you. <laughs> He's obviously guilty. That's why we're giving him to you. <laughs> and that's something. So Pilate said, okay, well, if he's a guilty person, then you judge him. You've got a law, you've got courts. And he, the Jews said, well, we can't put anyone to death. And I think this is what wakes up Pilate and says, oh, wait a minute. They're up to something, okay? Because he's not a dummy. And so um, he goes back into the praetorium. He summons Jesus. He can ask some questions and some other things. And um, anyway, Jesus mentions the truth, and he throws up his hands and says, well, what is truth? And he, when he had said this, he went out again to the Jews, verse 38, and he said to them, I find no guilt in him. I find no guilt in him. So just like the innocent guilt, uh, verdict for Jeremiah in, uh, in our chapter today, here's, here's an innocent verdict. He's going to be proclaimed innocent, I think, three times before he's convicted and executed. All right. Then he says, hey, you got a custom? I'm supposed to release somebody at Passover? How about if I release this guy and we'll all be happy? And they said, no. No, we want Barabbas. Crucify the Christ. So you get down to chapter 19 and you got verse 4 and you got verse 6. Pilate came out again and said to them, behold, I'm bringing him out to you so that you may know that I find no guilt in him. And um, then verse 6, there's the third statement. The chief priests and the officers are crying out, saying, Crucify, crucify. Pilate said to him, Take him yourselves and crucify him, for I find no guilt in him. Three times Pilate pronounced him innocent. And uh, sadly, though, unlike in Jeremiah's case, see, in Jeremiah's case, the mob went with the politicians. In this case, the mob goes with the, uh, the high priests. 
Also, the Apostle Paul, Acts chapter 24. Paul has several trials in the book of Acts. And there's years that go by while he's waiting for the next trial, while he's waiting for the next appeal. And um, in some cases, the mob is going to put him to death, and the politicians step in, the soldiers step in, and they they get him into safe into a protective custody, whereby he can stay in jail long enough to stay alive, long enough to get his fair trial. And um, but we see some of the same language. Here he is before Felix in Acts 24. And uh, and they just flatter him. This is, uh, <laughs> all right, let's see, Acts 24. After five days, the high priest Ananias came down with some elders with an attorney, look out, named Tertullius, and they brought charges to the governor against Paul. And Paul, after Paul had been summoned, Tertullius began to accuse him, saying to the governor, since we have through you attained so much peace and since your providence reforms are being carried out for this nation, we acknowledge this in every way and everywhere, most excellent Felix, with all thankfulness. But that I may not weary you any further, <laughs> you know, I beg you to grant us by your kindness a brief hearing. Won't take long. For we have found this man a real pest and a fellow who stirs up dissension among all the Jews throughout the world, and a ringleader of the sect of the Nazarenes. Isn't that funny? I crack up every time I read that. We have found this man a real pest. You know, I mean, if that's a crime, a lot of us are in trouble. All right. And uh, so here's the, this is the best they can come up with. And anyway, Paul finally gets a chance to speak, starting in verse 10. And he, he says, I'm cheerful. I'm cheerful. I'll cheerfully make a, mis- a, a defense. Since uh, you can take note of the fact that no more than 12 days ago, I went up to Jerusalem to worship. Neither in the temple, nor in the synagogues, nor in the city itself did they find me carrying on a discussion with anyone or causing a riot. Nor can they prove to you the charges of which they now accuse me. There's no proof. There's no charge. It's all trumped up. It's uh, complete innocence here. He says, but I'll confess this. I'll admit to you that according to the way, he says, yeah, I'm born again. And he uses this. He gets the opportunity to preach Christ to to Felix. In the next chapter, he gets, uh, so let's see, two years go by here. And then he gets uh, his trial before Festus in chapter 25. It's just a lot of verses there, 1 through 12. Um, Again, they don't find any real charges other than he needs to die. And um, he says, are you willing to go up to Jerusalem to stand trial? And he knows if he leaves Caesarea, they got an ambush ready for him between Caesarea and he'll never make it to Jerusalem. He'll never make it to trial. And uh, anyway, and he says, if I'm a wrongdoer, I've committed anything worthy of death, I don't refuse to die. That's verse 11. And uh, anyway, so he's going to appeal to Caesar. That keeps him from going to Jerusalem, and he gets to he gets to sail to Rome. Uh, verse fifteen, verse sixteen. Um, it's interesting because uh, Festus and Felix get together to talk about this. They say, "Can you believe this? You've ever seen a trial like this before?" And uh, so um, he's told here: there's a man who was left as a prisoner by Felix, and. When I was at Jerusalem, the chief priests and elders of the Jews brought charges against him, asking for a death sentence. And I answered them as was, uh, it was not the custom of the Romans to hand over any man before the accused meets his accusers face to face and has an opportunity to make his defense against the charges. You know, there should be due process. We should produce evidence and have a trial. And, uh, and so forth. You get down to verse 27, 24 through 27. There's nothing worthy of death here. Um, verse 24, Festus said to King Agrippa, and all you gentlemen here present with us, you see this man about whom all the people of the Jews appeal to me, both at Jerusalem and here, loudly declaring that he ought not to live any longer. You know, if the evidence isn't on your side, just go for volume. <laughs> just make it louder. Pound the pulpit, whatever it takes. And I found that he had committed nothing worthy of death. And since he himself appealed to the emperor, I decided to send him. Yet I have nothing definite about him to write to my Lord. 
I'm sending a prisoner and for the first time ever, I have no legal brief to write. I have nothing to write to Caesar. I'm sending a guy to Caesar. I got nothing to say. Therefore, I've brought him before you all, and especially before you, King Agrippa, so that after the investigation has taken place, I may have something to write about. For it seems absurd to me in sending a prisoner not to indicate also the charges against him. I mean, seriously, how absurd is that? Finally then, uh, the next chapter, 26, uh, Acts 26, verses 31 and 32. And this is kind of cool too, because this is where we get Berenice in the Bible, or Vernus, depending on how you spell it, my mother's name. Um, So the king stood up, and the governor, and Bernice, and those who were sitting with them. And when they had gone aside, they began talking to one another, saying, this man's not doing anything worthy of death or imprisonment. And Agrippa said to Festus, this man might have been set free if he had not appealed to Caesar. Now they got no choice. They got to pack him off to Rome because otherwise they could just let him go. And so we're dealing with uh, the show trial here in the case of of Jeremiah. The people, however, were not as manipulated by the priests and prophets, maybe not as much as the priests and prophets thought they were, Like I say earlier in the chapter, I think the priests and prophets had the people on their side. But then the politicians get involved and the people went over. The people were not as manipulated by the priests and prophets as they sided with the officials in choosing for Jeremiah's release. The people sided with the officials in verse 16 here. Jeremiah 26, 16. They sided with the officials. And one man in particular stepped forward. And we get a glimpse of him way down at the end of the chapter in verse 24. The hand of Ahakam, or Hikam, or Ahakam, or however you pronounce that. The hand of Ahakam, the son of Shaphan, was with Jeremiah, so that he was not given into the hands of the people to put him to death. You know, you think about different people in different venues, different people that step forward to stand by somebody's side. Barnabas stepped forward to stand by Paul's side in Jerusalem. There's other instances where a man would step forward or a woman would step forward and they would side with somebody. And in this case, it's Ahikam, the son of Shaphan. He becomes the personal advocate for Jeremiah. And if you want more background on this, I encourage you, uh, take the time to read in 2 Kings chapter 22, when Josiah was king and when they found the law, and Shaphan was the scribe that was charged with reading that law and his son Ahakam was a young man then this is about I think a, I forget the the year difference between then and now but um would be on the timeline that we were looking at 622 compared to say 609 608 607 something like that so 15 years ago ballpark Shaphan and Ahakam were both prominent when the law was found during the days of King Josiah. And this is interesting to me. Um, Shaphan's not mentioned in this chapter. He's probably, I don't know if he was an older man in that day, then maybe he's with the Lord by now. But Ahakam is still around. And it's interesting to me, when you have a generation that's still old school, know what I'm talking about? If If you still have old school, how much longer are you going to have them? And as old school dies out and new school takes over, um, what happens to your culture? What happens to your nation? What happens, you know, what happens to Jeremiah when there aren't any old school guys around? Yeah, he got rescued this time. But he's going to minister for, for still more years in front of him. Not just King Jehoiakim, but King Jehoiachin, King Zedekiah. He's got two more kings to serve under. And even beyond that, post-Zedekiah, he's, he's going to still be in ministry when Gedaliah is, is left to, to um, handle things. And if I'm not mistaken, Gedaliah is also related. I think Gedaliah might be Ahikam's son. I've got to double-check that. I think there's a family connection there as well with Gedaliah. All right, but now the elders speak up. The elders speak up, starting in verse 17. 
some of the elders of the land, they take the occasion of Jeremiah's acquittal to recount two opposing stories for the benefit of the people's instruction. So you think, okay, trial's over, we win, Jeremiah's alive, let's just go home and, and have fun. No, there's doctrine to be learned here. Old school, right? The elders are going to share some things so that hopefully the people don't get whipped up by the next fad that comes through. Some of the elders of the land take the occasion of Jeremiah's acquittal to recount two opposing stories. And I'm not going to have time to walk us through each one of these. Um... Because there's the Micah story and the Uriah story. And um, they are significant. Oh, they are absolutely significant. All right, so no death sentence for this man, for he has spoken to us in the name of the Lord our God. Verse 17, Then some of the elders of the land rose up and spoke to all the assembly of the people, saying... And to me this is vital. These are the elders that... Who knows? This, these could be the last Bible classes that Daniel and, and Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego get to listen to. Because in 605, they get taken hostage. They get carried off to Babylon. So these elders speak up and they say, Micah of Moresheth. Remember him? Book of Micah. All right? Minor prophet. Book of Micah, contemporary of Isaiah. Micah of Moresheth prophesied in the days of Hezekiah, king of Judah, and he spoke to all the people of Judah, saying, in fact, he spoke messages very similar to what Jeremiah is speaking these days. Thus the Lord of hosts has said, Zion will be plowed as a field, and Jerusalem will become ruins, and the mountain of the house as a high place of a forest. Did Hezekiah, king of Judah, and all of Judah put him to death? Is that how they responded? Did he not fear the Lord and entreat the favor of the Lord and the Lord changed his mind about the misfortune which he had pronounced against them? But we are committing a great evil against ourselves. So he's pointing back to that example of Micah. And he's saying they did well. They said Hezekiah did well. But we don't have a Hezekiah anymore. We've got a Jehoiakim and things are going from bad to worse. We are committing a great evil against ourselves. And that, I think, is interesting because that betrays something right there. The people aren't positive at all to doctrine. They're just bending and flowing. And so we get a good verdict, but that doesn't indicate that the people are positive. They're not. The next verdict won't go so well. I think that's significant. But in Hezekiah's day, there was positive volition to the Word of God. And the king responded, Hezekiah responded. He got 15 extra years added to his life. So the Micah of Moresheth story occurs in the book of Isaiah time frame and it reflects a positive political and public attitude toward the Word of God. To me, this is huge. This is why weeks and weeks ago, what, 66 plus 26, I, I just got this burden to feed, feed you guys Isaiah and Jeremiah back to back. I wanted to, to feast on it. I wanted you guys to feast on it. I want this flock to be equipped with Isaiah and with Jeremiah because there's two sides of a coin and in what direction is our nation headed? In the, in the Isaiah message, they responded and they got another 150 years. In the, in the Jeremiah message, they did not respond. They were negative. They rejected him and, and they were destroyed. It is a contrast this citation here, Zion will be plowed as a field and Jerusalem will become ruins. This comes from Micah 3.12, by the way. I think this devastates the liberals' uh, theories about how Scripture was written and how illiterate the Jews were until they came back from Babylon. <laughs> All right? And good thing they had their captivity. They would have never learned how to read or write until they came back from Babylon. What a, what a lie. They were very literate. Always had been. They came out of Egypt literate. Moses was trained in all the, the high education of the Egyptians. They had scripture going back to the Pentateuch. All right. And here, they've got it. These elders are preaching out of the book of Micah. Isn't that great? I think that's, that's, that's a, a tremendous testimony. If you want to study Old Testament canonicity, you want to study things uh, related to that. We saw last week how Daniel was reading from Jeremiah. All these clues that we have in different places. 
Now, Uriah. This is not Uriah the Hittite. This is not uh, Bathsheba's husband. This is not the David murder. This is a different Uriah. I'd like to meet a Uriah someday. Never have. Maybe they're brothers. Maybe they can meet a, a Uriah and an Ichabod. Um, but someday I'd like to meet a Uriah. Although it seems the Uriahs in the Bible, good things don't happen to them. Um, <laughs> and uh, anyway, it's a similar story. It's contemporary because it takes place in the reign of, of King Jehoiakim. Indeed, there was also a man who prophesied in the name of the Lord, Uriah, the son of Shemaiah from Kiriath-Jerim, and he prophesied against this city and against this land, words similar to those of Jeremiah. So Micah's words were similar, Jeremiah, uh, Uriah's words are similar. What's the difference? Well, Hezekiah didn't try to have, uh, didn't try to have uh, Micah executed, but uh, this is what happens to Uriah. King Jehoiakim and all his mighty men and all the officials heard these words, and the king sought to put him to death, but Uriah heard it and he fled to Egypt. But King Jehoiakim sent men to Egypt. You know, how far can you run? Elnathan, the son of Ekbor, and certain men with him went to Egypt. And they brought Uriah from Egypt and led him to King Jehoiakim, who slew him with a sword and cast his dead body into the burial place of the common people. That's an entirely different outcome. So this uh, story is a very recent event in the book of Jeremiah time frame. It reflects a negative political and public attitude toward the word of God. Reflects a negative political and public attitude toward the word of God. And so it's really surprising. The rescue of Jeremiah in this chapter is unexpected. His generation is more attuned to the Uriah murder than to the Micah rescue, see. And yet here he's rescued. In spiritual terms, it is evident that God is miraculously preserving Jeremiah. In political terms, it is evident that statesmen such as Ahikam, son of Shaphan, are not going to be around much longer. And you start to think both in the spiritual realm and in the temporal realm, what might we expect? Is God's hand a blessing upon our land or not? Are there still, is there still positive volition? Is there still old school somewhere that will cling to the word of God and stand for righteousness? Or is that all gone? Is it completely gone? I find that interesting as well. All right. Well, in chapter 27, Jeremiah gets to do some show and tell. He's going to manufacture his own uh, yoke, his own bonds. And he's going to walk around wearing yokes. And... Um, and I guess that's interesting. It makes a point. People don't forget it when a prophet's walking around town and he's wearing the wearing the yoke everywhere. You know, and it's better than Isaiah. Isaiah had to go naked for three years, so this is, I think, an improvement. But it's making a point, and it's going to come under attack. There'll be some false prophets that'll step up, and will actually break uh, uh, Jeremiah's yoke as a part of their false prophecy. And uh, the Lord is going to deal with that as well. So we'll get into that in chapter 27 and 28. But for now, though, we've got to wrap it up. We've got to have communion today. Let me close with prayer. Father, I thank you for your truth. I thank you for your faithfulness. I rejoice, Father, in how uh, you rescue. You are able to rescue. You rescued Jeremiah. You, you can rescue us or not, as is your good pleasure, Father. I pray that uh, our nation would continue to have a remnant, a pivot, positive volition of believers enough old school still around that can stand for righteousness and stand for truth and yet father um it's in your hands whatever uh, whatever happens you maintain sovereign control you will provide for your children in uh, as you did for isaiah and as you did for jeremiah whatever uh whatever course of uh, human history our nation is headed for father your truth is sufficient and we thank you for that so bless your word, Father, and, uh, and bless our study. I thank you, Father, in Jesus Christ's name. Amen.